Thank you for everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Extra Rounds Podcast. As always, my name is Mike Dice. I'm Aliyah Sabeda. And we are here live from Chicago uh, to talk all things MMA with you. Uh, first, I uh, wanted to announce that we're going to have Ken Shamrock on the show 30 minutes past the uh, hour. He's going to be calling in to talk about a panel he's doing here in Chicago alongside Frank Shamrock and Guy Metzger. So that's going to be an interesting thing if you're in Chicago. Uh, we'll give you details later in the show about how you can attend that. You can meet the guys. You can ask them questions and interact with them. It's a really cool thing that they're doing. But uh, for, to start, we're going to look back at the biggest sports stories or the biggest stories at MMA. And Those are the biggest sports stories. Yes, they are the biggest. <laughs> and on the heels of UFC 200 or 211, um, there's definitely lots to talk about. So uh, let's kind of jump right in and we'll, we'll kind of work our way through media week. Yeah. Um, the first thing was the summer press conference tour on friday that was before the official weigh-ins they're doing these press conferences now to make sure that people actually come to the official weigh-ins at least from the media not the fans the official uh, the ceremonial weigh-ins are for the fans not um you know the media gets all the information yeah. at the official weigh-ins earlier but this was a um, interesting thing they had listed off a few names who were going to be there there's a tagline that said more uh, more fighters will be announced or more athletes will be scheduled to attend but they didn't give you any kind of indication of who so everybody kind of expected fight um fight announcements to be you know made walking around uh the fighter hotel that morning you i ran into chris weidman which seemed a little peculiar um you know amanda nunez had posted a picture on instagram of her on a plane <laughs> that was kind of a hint you know there were some other things like that that uh were hint the two best who were i think did the best at keeping quiet were daniel cormier and john jones mm. um that one i think kind of caught everybody off guards by a, a lot and i think it's crazy that they didn't even promote that because that would have really uh packed the stance but anyways i thought it was really cool how they did it mm. I think the UFC PR team, there's some new new blood there, new influences or new ideas are being welcomed. And uh, I think they're doing a lot of cool things. And I think the way that the press conference started was really cool. For those of you who didn't see it, it started like this. There was a big screen hanging down and they were playing, uh, I think, an episode of Ultimate Fighter or maybe mm -hmm. UFC 211 countdown beforehand. And then it switched to this promo package that like listed off all these fights mixed in with highlights and that's kind of confirmed everything when they showed the jones cormier on the screen that was official for ufc 211 uh the crowd went nuts and typically at these press conferences you're looking at the stage and it's empty and mm -hmm. dana white comes out and then he introduces everybody one by one and they all file on instead the screen drops and everybody's sitting where they need to be sitting and it was a really cool moment like you could tell that it caught everybody off guard all the media people were sitting there um, behind cameras and all of a sudden it happens and everybody's scrambling to push record uh guilty and <laughs> it was just a real cool moment i think it caught the fans off guard they seemed to really enjoy it it caught the media off guard personally i thought it was cool and, and different than the typical thing yeah um and it, it was very interesting so they're doing things like that and i thought that that was uh, that is really dope i like that That's, anything uh anything switching up and, and any cool reveal like that is, is exciting yeah, they're adding a little flair. Yeah, yeah, um, I like that. The, the strategy of not announcing who's going to be there. I mean, you say Amanda Nunes and Weidman and uh, Cormier and Jones, like people will pack. Yeah. That, to be fair, the line was already around the building to get into the weigh-ins, which is <laughs> in itself very impressive. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's crazy to think how much more packs it could have been. Uh, that being said, the press conference... Um, as we learned afterwards, there was a fight backstage <laughs> before it began. While they were trying to get everyone to their seats, John Jones and Daniel Cormier, as they're um, known to do when they're near each other, <laughs> got into a fight. Jones said something about Cormier's children. Mm. Uh, Cormier responded by throwing water bottles. Um, fun little tidbit that I learned <laughs> because Mike Chiesa posted a video of it on Fox Sports Procast. Uh, backstage so you can actually kind of see the aftermath of the fight once everybody stepped in it's crazy chris weidman and kelvin gastelum are in the middle trying to hold these guys apart um you know the fighters are in there trying to separate these two guys not just the security and the pr team which is just to show how intense it was uh. but in the video kiesa holds up a monster can and shows that it's opened and empty <laughs> so they don't uh 
put full monster cans out there anymore like they used to, obviously, because of the whole Conor McGregor thing at yeah. UFC 202. Which, Him and Nate Diaz and Jake Shields throwing coffee and monster cans. Right, which is interesting. Obviously, they give them water so they can stay hydrated. They're under hot lights <laughs> and they're talking and they need to have, you know, their yeah. no more metal. Working, no but, more metal. Right. But then when the I didn't notice it at the time. But afterwards, looking back at the video, all the water bottles had been removed as well. So nothing was on um, on the stage. So That's hilarious. Uh, then, of course, as the press conference went on, there was the moment where... They didn't uh, need water bottles or cans. Mike Chiesa rushed Kevin Lee to attack him. And the other thing you noticed is that when the screen dropped, there were two security people mm. uh, between Jones and DC mm-hmm. standing right behind um, the podium, which kind of seemed like an oversight precaution thing. And there was another security guy sitting next to DC, basically, mm. which kind of seemed like maybe they're just being cautious. But now knowing what happened, it makes sense. <laughs> they had, they were understaffed. They needed more security. Right, which was crazy <laughs> to think that you had no idea that uh, we, were, we were all watching the screen and it happened right behind there, but nobody had an, any idea that yeah. that was going on. That's crazy. Um, but anyways, Kiesa Lee fight. So yeah. there's a lot of fighting going on at press conferences. Is that a good yeah. thing? Yeah, I'm fine with it. You're fine with it? <laughs> yeah, I don't really I mean, listen, I, I it it can go it can go bad. Like uh Michael Chiesa ran after Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee threw a real punch that looked like it connected. Uh Amanda Nunes put her fist on her uh, 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 uh Valentina's face, Shevchenko's face. Like injuries can happen and things can go wrong then. Um so it could end up really bad and hurting a lot of people and the bottom line for a lot of people and I, that's bad here's here's why i'm fine with it if we're gonna do the artifice of making people pose in a necessarily and just naturally confrontational confrontational position meaning we're gonna have them face up close to one another and ask them to put their fists up and they're we can't expect these things not to happen i think it's unnatural to do that like if, I, if you and me are on the street mike Someone, there's a certain distance that someone I don't know with a certain posture or a certain uh, demeanor that, that I'm going to, you know, and you're going to allow them to get, you know, to us. We're, you know, arm's length is about as close as anyone ever needs to get. You're getting, if we're going to make them get closer. Stay out of my bubble. Yeah, you know, if we're going to force them into each other's bubbles, these things are going to happen. So at that point, I'm not interested in, like, making a, a, a black sheep out of any one of the fighters that does it. Do I do? Do I think it could end? You know, could it could result in some uh, some some bad things happening, like cuts or fights? You know, but Kiesa and Lee are fighting in six weeks. A cut happens there, fights fights called. So yeah, it could go wrong. But if we're gonna make them do this stuff, uh, I'm I'm not. I don't I don't personally like dislike it. I think it's natural. So I, I can't blame these guys and girls. And we didn't even touch on the fact that Nunes and Shevchenko, because they made them stare down mm-hmm. after fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nunes and Shevchenko had a little moment where she kind of swiped at Shevchenko's hand. Yeah. Afterwards, Nunes said it was because Shevchenko touched her face. Yeah. But Nunes turned in such a way that her back was to the crowd and media. And she said that's why we didn't pick up on that. Sure. Shevchenko touched her face because it was her right hand coming on the blind side from the center. Anyways. No, I think you're right. No, but I think those are those are that's exactly the type of point I'm, I'm you know making. Everyone was thinking of Matt Nunes is like a monster, but hey, they're just <laughs> they have a history. You're making them get close to each other. Someone makes a little contact, the other person's gonna make more contact. That's kind of the way it goes. There's two like schools of thoughts. It mm-hmm. seems to be on this. There's the people who wish UFC fighters would act like other athletes and mm-hmm. be more professional, and whatnot. And then there's the other people who. They they like the sport because they like this stuff. They mm-hmm. like it's like real professional wrestling to them in some regards. <laughs> but like, you know that this stuff like this helps sell fights. It's part of what made Conor McGregor so popular, right? And it's part of uh, what's catapulted him. And you know this. You talk about people selling fights, and you can't criticize Demetrius Johnson for pay per view bias when he just says things and he doesn't cause these kinds of right. Uh, dust-ups yeah, yeah, at for sure. press conferences. So it's like, which one do you want? No, for sure. And also, I don't think UFC athletes really ask uh, act more out of line than other athletes. I mean, I think... I mean, I don't think the crime blotters bear that out to be true. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, by and large, they're really, really respectful, especially when you consider, you know, how violent the confrontations are. You know, nine times out of time, uh, ten, Mike, you know this. Even if there's a lot of trash talk after the fights, these fighters, you know, they hug it out and stuff because they, they have respect. But, yeah, I think... Uh, McGregor Diaz did after Taylor Exactly. You know, now in later moments, are they still going to tra- uh, talk trash? Sure, but they do share something. And I think most of the time they, uh, they appreciate that. But, yeah, it's just tough to criticize. It's okay to not want to see that stuff happen 
But it's tough for me to criticize individual fighters once we set up a sport in a way that we're going to make them square up in that way. Like we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we want this drama. You know, the UFC is going to use clips of all of those things for, they're going to use clips of everything but talk. They already did actually later that weekend when they showed Daniel Cormier and John Jones going at it and they showed Kiesa and Lee going at it on the broadcast. The only thing they didn't show was John Jones's relishing how awesome cocaine is but you know that was like a line they wouldn't cross but the actual violence and the physical confrontations oh they'll milk that forever even if someone gets fined off of it by even the state in commission. the lead up to jones dc one they showed the fight oh well which they got fighting this was they got think, fined for but they used it to promote the right fight. Yeah. this is the of course that was they had that fight got postponed so yeah. they had time to especially work it in yeah. to the promotional materials but anyways um the thing is there's a there's there's casual fans or yeah. new fans, just relatively new fans to the sport who've come in um, lately as the sport's grown in popularity. And things like this sell the fights. And yeah. that's unfortunate. Well, I don't want to say unfortunately, but it's a sure. reality of the sure. situation. Sure. And there's probably a lot of people who are you know, fans who don't know who Michael Kies is and don't know who Kevin Lee is. Mm-hmm. And now that they've seen this. Like they're gonna turn into that Oklahoma City card, which is yeah. a good card. It is like, a good card, actually. Police yeah. Eric's fighting on there. Johnny Hendricks Clay is fighting Guida's there. on the card. Clay Guida's on the card. Good card. Um, really but good card. you know that helped make them that fight that whole card more Agreed. visible. Agreed. So I have a much more of a problem with Kevin Lee mentioning someone's mother than him throwing see, a punch. He okay. So at UFC 211 in the press uh, area, they brought. You know, they bring all the fighters back for their post-fight interviews after they get out of the cage. And uh, sometimes at particularly big events where there's a lot of UFC uh, fighters floating around, they'll bring uh, fighters who are in attendance backstage. And Kevin Lee was one of them. And, you know, he talked about it and he kind of seemed a little bit confused be- about it because he didn't say anything really bad about his no, mom. Just mentioned and I don't. It. And I don't think he said anything bad. He said something worse that Kiesa didn't even acknowledge <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, and I think he was asked about that during the press conference, and he admitted that it wasn't – or didn't admit, but he mm-hmm. said it wasn't intentional. It was just he didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he just said his mom was going to have tickets, and yeah. she probably will. Right. It's but. just mentioning someone's mother. And I'd like, I'd, I, the reason I like that is that is Nate Diaz – remember Nate Diaz criticizing Jose Aldo for letting Conor McGregor just – punk him all over the world, touch him, you know, call him names. And he said, you know, if I was there, you do touch me or you say one of these things, you get in my face like that, I'm going to, I don't care who's around, we're going we're gonna to fight right then and there. I think Michael Chiesa drew a line. And, you know, maybe it's an irrational line. Or maybe, but he said, you know what, actually, no. The second you mentioned my mother, I'm going to fight you now. Uh, actually, personally, thought that was good. <laughs> I think that's fine. Like, I, I think that's cool. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that's generalizable behavior everyone should uh, you know should go for, but I actually respected Michael Chiesa for just arbitrarily drawing a line in the sand when someone was just mentioning mentioning his family, um, and he talked about it afterwards and just stuff I, I I read. He was like, "Yeah, my mama's boy. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't want, I don't need him talking about my mother. Yeah, like my mom. You know, it just it it just really pissed me off. So I don't even know if it was like predetermined, but I think it like really just like tugged on something like what don't talk about my mother Un- at all unfortunately i think he just showed him his yeah hand. yeah don't don't Michael say that Lee's that's gonna torment yeah. or kevin lee's gonna torment him for the next couple of weeks or six weeks. yeah yes i better fight but, angry well uh so for those of you listening on the podcast version of this later we do the show live on facebook and we can interact with the fans in real time and i posted that uh you can shoot us your thoughts and questions and we'll read them on air uh we got a couple in and i just wanted to get nice. those on before we talked about the actual yeah fights that people paid to see at UFC 211 <laughs> not the ones they got for free um so first we have Alan Rose who said who said when do you expect to see McGregor return that's um up in the air because mm-hmm. uh, Dana White set a deadline for this weekend to get a deal done they've reached a deal to have a Mayweather fight done but they still need to work out a deal with Mayweather so who knows yeah um yeah right yeah that's other a, than that it's interesting you know if they go back to MSG at the end of the year that might be mm-hmm. when you see him return uh Otherwise, there's not really a whole lot of information. Right. Uh, Jefferson Da Silva, he says, what's your opinion about Sagano's future in the UFC? Now, this is a good segue back to UFC 211. Uh, Junior Dos Santos lost the main event to Stipe Miocic, Mm -hmm. who knocked him out in about two minutes, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly, two and a half or something like that. And uh, in the process, Stipe Miocic tied the heavyweight record for title defenses, which stands at a whopping two. Mm -hmm. Um, But... 
that also puts into question Junior Dos Santos's future. He's, uh, you know, fought Stipe twice. Yeah. Um, it was a decisive defeat. You know, so what do you think? What is your read? I'm imagining he'll continue to fight. I, I think Junior Dos Santos is skill-wise one of the best heavyweights uh, in history. It just he's just out of his prime, and by that I mean he's taking enough damage and age enough where his reflexes uh, aren't where they need to be to, to beat the, the best in the world. Um, and there's big consequences when your reflexes slow down in fights, and we, we saw that for him um, even just in a couple of years. His first fight with Stephen Miocic, although I scored that fight for Miocic, uh, it was a closer fight, right? And this one he was just very much uh, several steps behind Miocic, who himself is not like very young and himself has – Probably had plenty of damage as well. He, he slurs his speech pretty good already. Um, I, you know, I think I think Junior should. We talk about this a lot, Mike. In terms of health, Junior Dos Santos, I would love for him to be able to have a another thing now to go to full time that that he can uh, find satisfaction in, that he can make a living uh, doing. Because although he can beat ninety nine point nine percent of all humanity in a fight right now, I, I don't think he stands a good chance of being a champion again in the division and and that's a precipitous fall because he's amazing he's a great fighter so if a great fighter can no longer um compete for at the level that they used to it, it's it's tough it's you know it's not uh it's not pickup sticks it's not baseball like you get you know when you get slower you get hit more uh, in, in fighting so it's it's tough i don't know what his future is going to be i'm sure he's not going to quit i kind of wish he would and he had other options me personally i uh I asked Steven Miocic this at Media Day about the young crop of um, heavyweight fighters coming up, and he was kind of Steve is not known for necessarily always giving the best quote, <laughs> uh, so he kind of didn't really give a particularly interesting answer. But I asked him about it. You know, to a lot of people, Steve Miocic represents a new era in the heavyweight mm. division. People like Junior Dos Santos and your Alistair Overeem's. Um, and this kind of old guard veteran moving out. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people, and for the first time in a while, a lot of young guys in the heavyweight division that are drawing a lot of interest. Um, Francis Nagano, Derek Lewis. um, These are heavy hitter guys coming up. And, you know, Francis Nagano, could you imagine him fighting Junior Dos Santos? It just seems... With his quickness and his size right now, it could could go bad. It seems scary. But, like, you know, if that guy gets the heavyweight title fight, it's not a foregone conclusion that Stipe Miocic reaches that third title defense. Sure, sure, um, 100%. So, you know, in, he's such a nice guy, um, Junior DeSantos. He's a really – he's a good role model. He's polite. Um, at one point at open workouts, the media was um, asked him that if he had to trash talk Junior uh, Stipe Miocic, what, how would he and what would he do? Because he's that kind of guy. Like, he just <laughs> yeah. won't say anything but nice things. Right. And, he went on this story about how the nice guy always finishes last, and um, he felt good going into this fight because he felt like it was two nice guys, mm-hmm. and regardless of who won, the nice guy would walk away. That's that's the question. That's the answer he gives when you ask him to. <laughs> yeah, to, to trash talk. Yeah. Yeah. He no, doesn't say, true. I guess, Stipe's ugly. But. <laughs> yeah, right. He's a stone-cold warrior because he doesn't have to get – I mean, look at him in, in the cage. He looks mean. He looks angry. But he doesn't have to put on a, a facade before. He can go in there and, and attempt to do his job. Same with Stipe. I mean, Stipe seems really – Easy going until he's fighting. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a truly dangerous person. That guy is all jokes all the time. <laughs> like at media day, somebody would ask him a question and he would joke, and then it seems like he'd always be like, "No, no, I'm kidding," and then he would give an answer. But um, <laughs> that's awesome. He said at the UFC, the post-fight con- press conference, Stephen Miocic, that is, that he doesn't care about the title mm-hmm. record. Mm-hmm. Do you think he should? Yeah, I think uh, I don't do think th- he's downplaying it. I mean, I think he may be downplaying it, but I think if I think that's a good aspirational goal for him to not care about things because you, what, what does that do for him? He'll 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 have another opponent in front of him soon enough with his own particular challenges, and he'll have to think about that. If he adds on to that legacy history, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. That one thing will follow the other. If he manages to win his next fight, he'll have history. So adding, thinking about it more will just add pressure. I'm sure he's smart enough to, to think that. And, and, you know, maybe he's not consciously thinking about it, and that's why he's so successful is that he he just has trained him, his himself and his mind to focus on what he can control and what he can be doing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's good. I, I mean – I don't know what games he is playing with himself and his own head and stuff to focus on the right things, but 
Yeah, that is that that's 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 a good answer. He said <laughs> he, not, not caring about it is the right answer. He said he likes to win, and that's just his focus on keep winning. And he's like, and if I keep winning, I'll just keep being champion. I, sounds like sounds like that's a really healthy attitude. I mean, I bet he does care enough about winning every single time that he doesn't need to add more incentive. You know, and he goes. Uh, Back to work at the firehouse tomorrow. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Which Jeez. is still one of the coolest things I think about him. It's uh, pretty that cool. He, he did say, though, that people do start to recognize him a bit more <laughs> when he comes to car crashes or wherever he gets uh, dispatched. Ah, that's amazing. I mean, you know, it's, it's crazy because I, I, I know guys that train and fight and that, are, um, and that also are firemen. I don't know any, any, any women personally, but... You know, and they always say, yeah, you know, it's, it actually works out pretty well, the schedule, because you're off for a certain amount of days and, and all that. And I'm sure that's true, but it does seem just gnarly to have multiple full-time jobs. But I'll tell you what. He's not one of the fighters doing it because he needs the money. I mean, he, he's underpaid, but he's paid well compared to other U.S. I guess players. so. But, I mean, he, the thing I'm thinking about, he has no pension being heavyweight champion in the world. Uh, he has no year-long ins- year-round insurance being heavyweight champion in the world. So I actually think... No, he could he could use that money. Like he could use the yeah. pension and the benefits, that's you know. True. But I'm not saying that's why he's doing it. No, uh, you know. But uh, it seems like he loves being a, uh, a firefighter as well. But yeah, it can't it can't hurt having an actual pension and and stuff like that. Uh, Danielle Taylor, she's a strawweight. I want to say mm-hmm. she's a corrections officer. Yeah, she fought recently. She fought in the Nashville card. She that's is. Right. Uh, is she? I, yeah, she. I might think she's a, a corrections officer. Yeah, she. Yeah, that she fought. Uh, she is. She fought. Um, uh, we, we, she won and she won. We would try to, Oh my gosh, what am I blanking? We just, we had tried to get her on the show earlier that week. Um, Oh my gosh, Jessica Penny, former, yes. uh, straw weight title challenger. Super, super tough. Yeah. She's a corrections officer. That's insane. That's a, that's also a stressful job working in jails or prisons. As someone who just started Ooh. orange, just the new black. I can't, I, can't <laughs> um, I know that's a, that's enough, that's enough reality for me to not want to ever be in that situation. But we have Ken Shamrock joining us in about seven minutes. So I want to move on to the Joanna Yejunchek. I said that right. <laughs> we were joking did in the media it. thing. It's like you just can't you can't try to slowly say it. You just got to go fast and get it out. It's the only <laughs> way. That hole. So Game Joanna Champion, yeah. she uh, she fought Jessica Andrade. A lot of people thought that Andrade could present a challenge for her because yep. she has a lot of strength and she can be like a pit bull. Oh. Um, first of all, she can take a punch. We mm-hmm. learned that. Mm-hmm. But Joanna. Uh, pretty much dominated that fight mm. the first round i think you could have given to andrage but mm. uh all the judges gave her all five rounds one of them gave her a 10-8 round at one point yeah. uh, to give her a 55 50-44 score i asked her at the post-fight press conference if she thought this was the most dominant performance of her career she said uh she did and she said before going into the fight that now that she's moved to american top team she's going to another level mm. as far as her skills go mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um she's going to be more dominant than ever and she made the move before UFC 205 but she said she only had six weeks yeah that's right now she has more time um to spend there and improve and I think that showed so yeah do you think it was her best performance well I mean I think it was amazing I don't think it was the most dominant performance I think clearly she she you know she was she was more dominant against people like Carla Esparza and stuff like that. But uh, but I thought it was an amazing performance. I, the adjustments that she makes as the fight goes on are really a wondrous thing to watch. Uh, I, her opponent, Andrade, not only took a hit, she delivered it. And uh, my Muay Thai coach, Matt Johnson, who was watching the fight with here in Chicago, made a good point. He's like, in, in, uh, in, in Muay Thai, the culture is once you, once you get hurt, your coach is make you basically throw elbows because you know that you could be you know you could you can go out any second so you're throwing to cut to get a stop but you're throwing to hurt and if you look in that in that in that first round Joanna started going to the elbows pretty early she has great in elbows she did it all throughout the fight especially on separations from the clinch but she was hurt badly it looked to me uh and she was also manhandled so to speak i shouldn't say manhandled person handled big time thrown around a bit early on um and showed good hips and getting back up but andrade was a real threat she heard her she tagged her actually a little bit throughout the fight every single round and she never stopped coming forward um so i, I thought it was an incredible performance for joanna because as it went on she got sharper and sharper she started cutting angles she wasn't fighting in, in straight lines anymore and that's when you saw in the, in the final round i believe it was she got like an art standing arm triangle clinch 
basically getting the back of Andrade a couple times. She created that off of uh, her footwork. She got the back off of her footwork standing and made her opponent miss. Super, super impressive. I mean, it's hard to say any one fight of hers is more impressive than the other to me because she does seem to be getting better and better, uh, and, and she she can really turn it up over the... Her second fight against Gal, Claudia Gardella, um, she looked in big trouble in the in the first two rounds and then just really kept the same pace, got sharper and sharper as her opponent got more and more unbalanced. Uh, on her feet, and and also stole that fight away. So she's she's awesome. I don't doubt she's getting better and better. Now she's getting to spend whole training camps with the likes of Mike Brown. Up, uh, it looks like not any longer. But Kami, the wrestling coach there, a phenomenal coach, American Top Team, who I didn't realize until this fight is is leaving American Top Team. But yeah, I, I bet she's going to get better and better uh, for certain. She places plenty of stiff challenges, um, but she she's got everything she needs to get sharper and sharper. The thing that might be concerning about her is mm. it doesn't seem like she weathers damage well. Like she does mm. in the fact that she can take a punch, yeah. But like physically, like like a Diaz almost, like mm. a, a Diaz is going to bleed. Yeah, um, no, I mean she'll get caught. She, yeah, she doesn't have that BJ Penn skin that never gets cut. Like she yeah. did, uh, you know that well. It did look in social media posts that it that kind of went away relatively quickly. They, yeah, they handled that well. That could have gotten real bad. Um, but you know that looks like a big con- like could potentially be a concern for her. Sure, going forward. But no, it could happen. You know she looks, she looks so good. And yeah. the, you know you talked about her making adjustments, and it didn't seem like Andrade made any adjustments no. as the fight went on. She just kept pushing forward, and Joanna would just hit her before more often than not before she could ever do whatever she wanted to do. It's like she would step forward to get in position to do something. Yeah, and Joanna's already hit her twice and moved on. Yeah, and. It's impressive. And she wasn't doing that the first round or the second round. She gets better as the fight goes on. It's pretty amazing. And in her next fight, she will tie Ronda Rousey's record for mm. title defenses in women's division at six. This is her fifth. In the UFC. Yeah. In the UFC. Yeah. 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 Uh, obviously, that's not counting Rousey's strike force. Sure. Cyborg's defense. tenure reign as <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a champion. But yeah. But, yeah. Um, no, but it's incredibly impressive. And she's making history fast already. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Do you think she is because we had a column go up on fansite.com today from Oscar Stephen Willis. He mm. wrote that uh, she could be the UFC's next big star. Do you think she's still in a position where she uh, it hasn't quite assumed that throne but has the potential to, or do you think she's already established herself as a star? Well, I think she's established herself as a star. I don't think – I think she can get much more attention than she has. I think the UFC can continue to try to try to push her. And I think her star can rise for sure. We're just talking about fame and notoriety. I think I think the sky is the limit for her. I think she can be inter she can be an international household name. You know, in Europe she can become a household name. In uh, in 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 the United States she could as well. So no, she's definitely a star. Is she done? Is this as far as she can go in terms of notoriety? No, I imagine not. The I mean, she needs to be headlining pay per views, um, and and she can. I think she's she's pretty remarkable. Even just rhetorically talking with her like she's got personality so yeah i think she can be one of the next biggest stars in the ufc and i and i bet she's not done climbing yet now she mentioned during uh open workouts that she wanted to pursue that flyweight title when they create that division she thought it was a good thing it's been a great thing to see the ufc embrace the flyweight and featherweight divisions and launch those i think well, that was done in part in response to bellator uh you know, trying to snatch up mm-hmm. some fighters mm-hmm. to create those divisions, knowing that's where that UFC was lacking. Yeah. So time for Adam Wade soon. 105 yeah. is their talent rich area. I think that's um, so. I think that's something that they've uh, done in response. But it's a good thing, and definitely, it looks like the inaugural or the next season of the Ultimate Fighter will be to like the straw weight was to crown a champion. So pretty cool for the flyweight belt. So. Would you give, after that's all done and the two tough people fight mm. for the title, like Carlos Barza uh, and Namahuna, yeah. would you then give Joanna the next shot at that title? If she wants it, yeah. Like, she, 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 she deserves it. You know, if Misha Tate were still fighting, she would have an argument for it or something, you know. But, uh, yeah, if she wants it, absolutely. I think Joanna should be given basically whatever she wants. I think her marketability would increase if she's able to go after a second title. And... I don't know if she would want to or not or how her body would respond, but give her the opportunity if she wants to also hold both at the same time and defend both. That would be that would be crazy. She threw a bit of shade at Conor McGregor at open workouts. Oh, did she? Unintentionally. Unintentionally. They were represented by the same management. They've been very cordial yeah. on social media. Uh, I, Conor McGregor. I heard she hates his guts. Yeah. Con- Conor McGregor, <laughs> like, congratulated her, congratulated her, yeah. gave her props. But she was like a... 
she just mentioned like I, I would I would want to win both belts and actually defend both belts <laughs> and we're all kind of like Ooh. <laughs> that's cool that she uh, that she will want to do that I think she should and I think that just makes the the her star grow larger and larger so it's 2.30, which means we have Ken Shamrock on the phone. He is promoting the Penthouse panel on May 20th, Saturday in Chicago. If you are in the Chicago area, you can buy a ticket to that. It's a really cool event they've done in Chicago a few times. Uh, the, basically, they get some MMA legends together. I think last time Matt Hughes was on the panel. Mm. I'm drawing blanks at who the other guys were on the panel. But it's all legends and big names of the sports. This week... They're doing a little bit of a lion's den thing. Yeah. Uh, Ken Shamrock, Frank Shamrock, and Guy Mesger, uh, three legends of the sport, all sitting there talking. So, um, you know, we're excited to get to talk to Ken. Absolutely. So, we're good to go? Yeah. All right, Ken, uh, thanks for being on the show. Really excited to chat with you. I remember back when I started training, I was in high school. Someone gave me, uh, one of my coaches, Ramiro, gave me your book, uh, your memoir, Inside the Lion's Den. So much fun reading that. And one of the things that stands out to me was when you first went to Japan through pro wrestling and uh, mixed rules fighting like Pancration um, and, 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 you know, forerunner of MMA. And you talked about being a new guy in the gym there and the intense training, how rough the guys were, the injuries you sustained and had to train and fight through, um, the thousands of squats you would have to do at a time. Looking back at those moments when you were in a new country, learning new things, getting beat up, pushing your body past your limits and, and, and fighting through injuries, what was your motivation? Did you see a viable career at the end of that tunnel? Uh, did you just want to show the rest of the guys in, in the room that you could hack it? Like, what really was driving you, would you say? Well, first of all, I didn't have much to really lean back on. You know, I mean, came from two group homes. didn't have really much college education. Uh, so, for me, it really was about becoming somebody. And I needed to find what my niche was. I didn't want to go back to where I came from, which was, you know, troubled youth and, and, and nothing but trouble and trying to drag myself out of that trouble. Um, so I felt like um, I found something that I felt like I could be really good at, and I loved doing it. And so really my mindset was really to become some, uh, at least become something. And I felt like this sport, this event, could do that for me. And once I got into it, uh, my mindset was like, nobody was going to be better than me. I was going to do whatever it took for people to um, uh, say my name whenever they mentioned this event. I wanted to be that guy. And when did you, was there a moment where you felt you could be that guy, like when you knew you could be good at this and catch on? Well, I think when I had my very first match um, in Japan and people started chanting my name, I didn't even know it until Sammy Saranaka told me they're chanting your name. Uh, that was my first fight. And I think once I heard that uh, and the training that went into that first fight and then my first fight, once I heard that, I was like, I'm home. I'm like, I found something. But then it turned into now um, being uh, the best. They're like, I was nowhere near those guys, uh, like Kanaki, Suzuki, Takata, or Maida. I was nowhere near those guys. And yet, my first fight, my desire was to beat them. My desire was to dominate this, this league. And um, and so then I started down that path. I knew how to do it and uh, was to put the effort in, put the time in, do more than the next guy, uh, and, be, and be completely focused on my, on my direction. And that's what I did. Was that, Ken, was that the first time in your life that you had felt that type of drive to to be the best at something, or did you always have that attitude growing up, uh, playing any of the sports you played? That's what I did. Well, when I, like I said, when I, my, you know, when I was younger, um, I was in an juvenile hall. I didn't have uh, anybody real raised me. Then I ended up at Shamrock Boys' home where Bob Shamrock became my parent um, through the ward of the court. Um, and so when I started into sports, I had a lot of anger and frustration, so I directed my anger and frustration into that. But well, then it became something positive, which I didn't know at the time. But I felt good that people were patting me on the back for being aggressive and for being that guy people feared. And uh, even though in my mind it didn't 
normal. Hmm. But I, I said, well, fine. I said, if I can knock the snot out of somebody, I'm going to blow snot bubbles and they're going to pat me on the back for it, then I'm in. And so it really just started down that line where people started to care. They, they, they worked extra time with me to make my grades uh, get better. People spent um, time with me to make sure I didn't get in trouble. Uh, it seemed like I was getting special preferences. And because that was happening, I became like, I felt like I was important. And that, so I started working harder to get more of that. And really it just became a process for me and a way of life for me. Knowing, I knew where I could actually get that, that, that pat on the back. And that's really what most kids, when they're in that position, they really want to be accepted. Um, and if they're not, they're going to find ways to make people recognize who they are. Did, did sports give you an outlet to get rid of that anger when you were young, uh, Ken, like to get it out of your system? Or was it tough for you because you were getting, all of a sudden, getting rewarded for aggression, so you, it was maybe difficult for you to turn it off? Well, I, I think that, um, and, and where I was lucky, was that I had a Bob Shamrock, um, who later became my father. Hmm. But he really helped me, um, um, you know, kind of, compartmentalize it, I guess, if it's the right term, yeah. uh, terminology, to be able to keep it on the field, keep it on the wrestling mats, but don't take it out in public. Uh, and there was a couple of incidences where I, you know, went beyond the lines because I wasn't understanding of all these things. And when someone got in my face, my first instinct was to punch him. And so uh, he helped me understand through, you know, different ways of discipline. Um, when those things happened. And he broke it down to me one time uh, when uh, he explained it in, in a terminology in football where, where um, he said, people count on you. Uh, you got your teammates, you got the fans, the, the people that come to watch you. You got the teachers who put time into you. You got, you know, me and and, and, and Dee, who is my mom now, um, who care about you and want you to see you succeed. There's so many that your friends, um, there's so many people around you now that, 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 that believe in you. So when you do something um, that hurts these people, um, it's not just you that's getting hurt. There's all these people around that you've built a relationship with now. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I, I started to understand it. And he said, it's no different than, you know, when you're, when you're um, in, in, outside of all of that, if you get in trouble. There are still people who care about you, not just on the football field when you break the rules and you're penalizing the team and you're costing maybe a championship. I said, but it's also in life. The same thing works in life when you break the rules. All those same people you are hurting. So you can't just go out there and punch somebody in the face and not think that there's going to be people that are going to get hurt over your actions because there is. And so for me, it really helped me understand life through sports. And you talked about sports giving you a path to become somebody and, and people that would go on to be your family, like Bob Shamrock when he adopted you. So much of, of your life, because you it, you certainly did become someone uh, and someone who was well-known and, and famous in multiple realms, in fighting and professional wrestling internationally and, and here in, in the United States, you got famous. And so much of your life became public and family drama became public and all, all, many of your struggles were publicly discussed as well. Was just kind of curious. It would seem like it's you know you wanted to you wanted to become someone. You wanted people to know your name. Did fame has fame ever become even just a little bit of, of a burden for you? I, I can answer that pretty clearly. It hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been open uh, about um, what has happened to me, the things that I've gone through, because I I feel like. Um, it's just another avenue for me to be my frustrations and my anger and my hurt. It's being able to let other people know where I've been and what has happened and the way I've gotten out of it. And, 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 and that just because I've gotten out of it doesn't mean that it's gone. It doesn't mean that it doesn't still um, bother me because it does, but it's just being able to recognize that it is bothering you and that it's pushing you in a direction and that you're able to stop um, yourself from doing something stupid because you're going through something. So over time, you can understand those feelings and you can understand the different things that are happening to you um, and be able to control them and not put yourself in a bad situation. So I've always been open about who I am, where I've come from, and all the things that have happened to me. And I think because I've done that, um, I'm not afraid of people bringing it up or talking about it because it's not going to shock anybody or me when they do. 
Ken, I don't. We don't know how much you you follow um, MMA now and the different happenings at current events. But as a fan, since I was ten in nineteen ninety three, watching the first UFC and and covering it for a living since two thousand and five, it's right now two thousand seventeen seems like a really unique moment. Um, in the past, we had individuals like yourself uh, every once in a while uh, would would speak up or be critical of of promoters like the UFC uh, regarding pay and treatment and, and, and actually kind of battle with promoters and, and, and talk about different issues. Right now, though, to me, I can't remember another time in the sport of MMA's history where we've had more name fighters speaking out against the UFC, battling with the UFC uh, regarding pay, benefits, treatment, and things things of that nature. I've always said that that was going to be a problem. As soon as, um, you know, this all catches up, it's going to be a nightmare for the Fertitas and Dana White um, because of not exposing the amount of money that was being made and what they were actually paying themselves um, as opposed to what the fighters who were actually bringing in the fans, uh, what they were actually making. A lot of them were, like, happy because they got... Five hundred thousand dollars, or a million dollars, or even up to a point where someone made over over a million dollars, and then fans would say, "Oh, what were you complaining about? You made, you made, you know, three million dollars." And then um, because they don't know, they don't get to size it up against what the actual company is making, which is up to a hundred million dollars when you were actually making the three million, and that you were the main event, you were the marquee guy that was bringing in that hundred million dollars and that you want to get 1% of that. So for me, uh, I think that has always been, um, at least in my mind, was always going to be an issue. And I don't think we've seen the, the, the worst of it yet because the books haven't been opened up yet. I know we've got new owners. I believe in some time, if that does ever happen, someday it will. I just don't know whether it'll be in my lifetime or or whether than in the next one. I don't know, but I know it, it, it's going to happen because it, it always does. It always rises to the surface. And I think when that happens, I think then it's going to be very difficult. Um, maybe not for the fatigues because they're, they're, they've been in this business a while now. They're used to this kind of stuff. But Dana White was definitely the face, the guy that stood in front of the cameras and that boasted on, on how great they were doing um, and then making excuses of why they weren't paying the fighters. Um, but I think when that does come out, uh, and they do see the amount of money that was being made when the books do open up, I think it's going to be hard for, for Dana to, to walk around in public. And listen, I'm not saying this to be mean or, or uh, you know, vengeful or anything like that. I'm just saying it because it's I, something that I believe in. Listen, it's my opinion, so don't go freaking out if people are <laughs> reading this and saying it's true because it's not true. It's my opinion I think is going to happen. You... Ken, you've dealt with so many promoters over the years as a fighter and wrestler, and you've always seemed to be aware of your worth and said and done whatever you needed to behind the scenes or in public to kind of uh, ensure that you get that. Is that is that an attitude that you've always had, or did it take getting burned a couple times to become that way? That's not, that's not in my opinion, uh, is not uh, the way that I, that I do things. Hmm. I, I, listen, I, I accept whatever I made. I've got no... no qualms about, you know, me doing the contract. My only qualms was that I didn't get to negotiate from a fair stance. Mm. I wasn't getting to negotiate from the numbers, the real numbers that were coming in and all the back stuff that we don't get to see. I wasn't sitting in a room being able to negotiate from a fair stance. Mm. That's my only thing. But because that's what happened, it is what happened. Mm. The only time I speak up is when it's when I actually are on the outside looking in and seeing what they're doing to other fighters. It has nothing to do with me because I am set with what I have done and up to this point I'm not fighting for anything for myself. I am what I'm trying to do is fight for at least some equal pay for the fighters uh, now and for the fighters that when I was actually going to there and ended up the younger guys were coming up, I was actually speaking up for them, not for me, but for them, because I felt like the direction that it was going, that it wasn't going to be a pretty sight at the end of it. And I think, you know, hindsight now, it's always 2020. Now we're starting to see what I was saying in the earlier days about how I believed that they weren't being paid fair and I was being told to shut up. Mm. Um, 
by fighters and by the organization and blackballed in many situations because I was speaking about something that I believe was true. And now I think that now that you look at 20 years down the road, I think that people now are saying, okay, maybe Shamrock was right in what he said. Well, you talked about speaking up for other fighters, from things you saw from the outside. Would you ever consider Ken working specifically to help organize other fighters as part of a, a fighters association or a labor union? Well, listen, I'm not a, I mean, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a, a, an organizer, per se, in, a, in any political sense. Um, I basically, you know, I see something wrong, something I feel is wrong, I speak out. Mm. Um, and, and I have no problem supporting anybody that does do something like that that I believe is doing the right thing. But as far as me leading that, I don't think I'm the guy. Ken, one of the things we wanted to ask you about most, you fought for so long, is is the transition from being a very active uh, athlete and competitor to the path towards retirement. It, it, you know, sports, the sports world seems really cruel because you can be a really young man or woman but be an old athlete. Um, and, and, you know, as a professional athlete, you have so much of your identity wrapped up in competing. Uh, you have so much of your professional and your personal life wrapped up in it, your work. Um, how hard is it to move to another part of one's life and adapt to heading or to needing to slow down and, and, and move towards retirement as an athlete? Well, for me, it wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 when I started into it, it was something I wanted to do. I had a passion for it. I started getting good at it. I felt like I could actually make something of myself. I felt important. I ran that whole gamut. I became the best that there was at that time in two different countries in the world, really. Got a nickname as the world's most dangerous man that was given to me by a TV station. So, so I mean, I really accomplished uh, everything I ever wanted to you could ever accomplish in that. Then it came to a point in time where my skills had diminished. Um, and, and I wasn't in the position to really in a ranking system. I knew that. But then when people talked about retirement, I always heard people go, I want to go fishing, I want to go camping, or I just want to eat food, sit on the couch, and be lazy. And everybody has their own thing they want to do when they retire. I wanted to fight. I wanted to retire and just fight, enjoy myself. I didn't want to be in the competitive sports spotlight, although I was pushed into it. Um, and I, I didn't mind it at all, don't get me wrong. Um, but I also knew that I was not a world-caliber fighter and that, you know, if they wanted to use me in the limelight and, and sell tickets and, and fill the arena, then so be it. I'll fight as long as the fights make sense. And if you look at my career, other than Tito Ortiz, um, with me being 40 years old, 39, 40, 42 years old when I fought him three times, out of my prime, way out of my prime, and him being in his prime, um, those, that was the only time that I really stepped out hmm. and fought something that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. But I did it because I realized if I didn't, UFC wouldn't be where it's at today. I knew that if somebody didn't step in and build the ratings and try to get the UFC back up again, that they would close the doors. And then we would have different people trying to start it up and we'd have all these little things running around. Maybe somebody comes in, builds another organization, and it flies. I don't know. Hmm. But I knew at that point in time that I had an obligation to step in the ring and fight Tito Ortiz in order to bring the ratings up and save MMA. I believe that. That's hmm. just my opinion. Hmm. And, uh, and I did that. After that, I went out and I fought for my fun, hmm. for me to go out there and enjoy my life, being able to compete and train and have that atmosphere and fight all over the world in different events and being able to fight people that would be somewhat in my caliber because I knew I had, you know, a broken back, a broken neck, busted shoulder and a knee that had all been replaced. But I was not moving well from the stand-up to the ground, no question. But I still loved enjoying the competition. So I went out in a safe sense and I picked fighters that I felt like, hey, I'm not going to get destroyed here, but I can at least go out and have fun. Mm. And it wasn't anything other than me retiring and within my own sport and being able to go out and have fun with it. That's it. Of all the places you you have competed and performed in over the uh, across the world, can do you have a a favorite? Well, I wouldn't say favorite, but as far as you know, the actual style, I I enjoyed Pancrase because mm. um, it was. 
it was a, you know, there's a few things that could change that would make it the ultimate. But I really enjoyed the idea of when you hit the ground that it was strictly submission. Mm. That you had to be very skilled uh, in both areas, the striking and the submission. Because on the ground, if you took somebody down in, in mixed martial arts, sorry, no old bar, you could just pound a guy, right? I mean, mm. you don't have to have submission skills. You could just pound off. Right. And the submission guy has to work through those punches. Um, and I get it. I love both of them. I really did. But I thought that the vanquish style really forced fighters to be very skilled in both stand-up and the ground because you couldn't bail out on the ground with just striking. Hmm. So, Ken, have you seen what Eddie Bravo has been doing with his combat jiu-jitsu where it's submission grappling but open uh, hand strikes are allowed on the ground? Yeah, I, I think that, um, in my opinion, I think that um, I like that. I like it when, you know, you can mix um, the no holes barred um, kind of system in with the actual MMA system. We, we talked about this when we had Cole Miller on a few weeks ago with the EBI uh, combat jiu-jitsu and... and I, we we kind of saw slaps happening for the most part, uh, not really true hard palm strikes. And Ken, there is there is a diff. You fought under rules where palm strikes were allowed. There's a difference between a real hard palm strike and just a slap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A palm strike is more dangerous than a punch. If it's done right, you hit a guy's nose and that bone. Um, I mean, that's a real deal there. You, if, if if you hit a guy straight up into the nose, there's a good chance you can drive that bone into the into the brain. I mean, it's very so how are you spending your your time these days can you talk about a transitioning uh in your life what what have you been up to what do you do well I mean, right now i'm you know, i mean if you look at my my uh, my uh, social media sites you'll see that i'm really starting to reach out into a lot of the different types of businesses right now i I'm uh, starting to learn the lingo. I'm starting to learn how to position myself through, you know, communication, um, and 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 just really starting to understand how business it works. You know, and there's a lot of lot of competitiveness in that. So for me right now, I really transition more into the business and the tech world, uh, trying to catch up to everybody. But um, to me, it's exciting to to see how it all works and to really get into the verbal confrontation. Um, where they're really not verbal, they're, it's very subtle and very, very, very wise people that know how to um, communicate and put themselves in a very good position to negotiate good terms uh, in the business world or in, even in the tech world. So for me right now, I'm a baby uh, in a man's world trying to learn it, but I've got a lot of people around me that are, are really helping me move fast. Ken, could you talk to us about the event you got here this Saturday, May 20th, in Chicago, the Penthouse Panel. Uh, it, it It's kind of cool sounding to us from what we've heard about it. You're going to be with two of your old teammates, your uh, your brother Frank Shamrock, Guy Metzger, two other former world champions, and uh sounds pretty interesting. You're going to be giving ticketed fans a chance to sit down with you in a pretty private setting and listen to, uh, to stories, it sounds like, of, of you all coming up. Well, for me, it's exciting because... Um yeah, I think that uh, it's it's uh, it's the beginning of, of something that I want to continue to keep doing yearly and just keep adding more to it. But for, for this year, it's basically it's a penthouse panel. It's going to be in Chicago, May twentieth. And basically, what we're going to do with myself uh, and uh, Frank Shamrock and Guy Mesker is we're going to talk about the tales from the lion's den. You know, the beginning days, genesis, if you might say, of uh, actually the UFC. So um, it's going to be an exciting night. Um, the doors open at 4 p.m. If you want tickets, you can get them at the Penthouse Panel. Eventbrite is where you get the tickets, eventbrite.com. Um, and then click on to Penthouse Panel, and you can get your tickets there. Uh, and again, like I said, there's very minimal um, seats uh, there. It's going to be more of a cozy environment. So if you want those tickets, you got to jump on quick and get them. So 4 p.m., May 20th, Penthouse Panel, Tales from the Lions, and myself, Frank Shamrock, and Guy Mesby will be there talking about the Lion Den and the actual beginnings of the No Holds Barred and MMA era. 
That's a really cool concept. It seems like, Mike, that it's giving fans a chance to kind of do what we get to do all the time, which is talk to awesome uh, world-class athletes. And, uh, you know, they had the C2E2 comic book convention nearby a couple weeks ago. I had some friends that went to that. And, you know, I see a lot of people paying good money for, like, a quick handshake and a quick photo and, like, two seconds with someone that they really admire, an athlete or an actor. This is actually can you know, basically fans getting to sit down in an intimate setting and hear from you guys with no rush, like an actual real experience. Yeah, and also, too, you're, you're, not only do you have, you know, three guys from the Lions Den, which was the very first um, no-holds-barred MMA team put together, which I, I put that team together, yep. but you have uh, three world champions um, from the Lions Den um, talking of the guy Matthew, who was a champion in, in Pancras over in Japan with myself, and also in MMA um, in the UFC, and then Frank the same, where he, he was tremendous over in Japan in the Pancras organization. He beat Boss Rudin for the, the, the vacant title, so Frank was a champion there. And then, of course, he goes in and beats Gino Ortiz and becomes a champion in the UFC. So um, it's these great tales for three world champions from the Lions Den. And where can where can fans follow you on social media, Ken? Yeah, KenShamrock.com, and if you uh, click onto that, you can go to all my social sites. I have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and pretty much all of them. Yeah, I, they're all attached uh, to my uh, website. So go to KenShamrock.com, and, and uh, you can check out all the things I've got going on. If, if I was trying to list all the things that I'm doing now, it would probably take me 30 minutes. But it's very exciting times for me. It's a new beginning. I'm rebranding myself. Very, very excited about the future of Ken Shamrock and also uh, being able to keep the history of the Lions Den and of No Holds Barred and MMA alive. Well, that's, uh, that's a worthy goal for sure. Thanks so much, Ken, for, for being on the X-Rounds podcast, man. Really appreciate that. Hey, I appreciate it, guys, and God bless. I love that he's he, no holds barred. For 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 people who don't know this, this sport wasn't always called mixed martial arts. Valetudo, no holds barred. When I started training, you call it NHB. Pretty cool. I love that. I love yeah, hearing that used again. It's definitely an old term. I was talking to uh, David Branch in mm. uh, Dallas at UFC 211, and when he said he first started training, it was no holds barred and Valetudo. It wasn't MMA. Uh, That's you know, awesome. You forget that. You kind of take that for granted now when you uh, – when you talk about MMA, that there's there is that history, and it's cool that he got to leave it alive. Obviously, Guy Musker is a Dallas person, so there's always been a special bond with me and uh, that fighter in particular. Uh, I was telling Elias off the air that oh, um, yeah. one of my my first my first MMA fight I ever went to was a um, I don't even remember what it was called. It was in a ballroom at a hotel. I think it was definitely very amateur. I'm oriented. There was a girl that I knew in high school through friends who was training at Guy Mesker's gym in Dallas who was competing, and Ken Shamrock was um, kind of the overseer of affairs, the host, if you will. He was uh, kind of – he came into the ring and did a little speech or whatever. And uh, so that was cool. That's really um, cool. And you were set. You did. You left out kind of a funky part of the story, no, we man. Don't need to go there. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go there. Follow Mike on Twitter for his for his lurid details. No, but how cool is that? That'll be coming to a flow combat. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was cool. It's cool to hear him on. It's cool to hear him specifically talk about what he wants to do in mm. the future and moving on and uh, whatnot. And again, if you're in Chicago, check that out. It's yeah. a, it's a really special, unique opportunity that's uh, they do this frequently. But you get to go and sit and, you know, you spend an evening with these guys. It's not waiting in line, like yes. you said, and getting an autograph at um, a convention. If, for those of you going to the UFC Fight Fan Expo, and this is no fault of the UFC or anything like that, but so many fans want to meet these fighters that it just becomes like you're pushing people through. Mm. And, you know, it's just a line. You go up, you get your autograph, take your picture, and you move on. Maybe you say a couple things. Here you get to spend an evening and interact and watch, more importantly, three guys interact with each other and That's how true. their relationship works. So Pretty cool. Cool event. I would encourage you to check it out if you're in Chicago. Um, otherwise, we're rep- reaching the end of our time, but I wanted to touch on a couple of things really quickly. Demetrius Johnson did a Q&A with John Wortham on SI.com. Make sure to check that out. Uh, one of the things he said is he wants a seven-figure payday. And uh, I know in an interview, I think he said with uh, ESPN's Brett Okamoto that uh, MMA is the only sport where the best athletes don't get paid the best, yeah. which is an interesting way of looking at it. You know, <laughs> Joe Flacco isn't necessarily – um, selling tickets, but he's the one of the highest paid players in the league, 
but he's got a Super Bowl, and that's why. That's right. Um, so, anyways, will he get it? Uh, I, you know, if he uh, if he keeps pushing for it, he might. But he's got to he's got to be willing to keep pushing for it. Conor McGregor talked real big about not needing the UFC to do the Floyd Mayweather fight and looking at uh, uh, the law and all. And turns out, no, he's just trying to work with the UFC. So if he pushes for it, I sure hope he does. Uh, I think the UFC is going to be reluctant to do it, but uh, they're certainly calling him. One of the one of, if not the best MMA fighters of all time. Well, you know, maybe he should be paid like one of the best fighters of of all time. Then, and I should clarify that this wasn't direct. Uh, he was kind of being asked at the same time about a super fight at yes. 135 pounds. So this wasn't just like he thinks his next flyweight title defense should be this. He Which was saying that like I do. I should say that. I'll I mean, say that. that's <laughs> that's a you know an argument can be made there as well. Obviously, but but you're right. He um, specifically talked. He about wasn't saying that, and yeah. that's I think an important clarification. Yeah, is totally what is. his words meant. Um, also, this weekend, Titan FC 44. Jose Shorty Torres, a Chicago guy. We did an interview with him. Uh, you can look that up. It was like an hour long. It was a great sit-down talk with him. He uh, came into the studio. Uh, he fights this weekend for the Bantamweight title on Titan FC. He, if he wins, uh, becomes a 2-8 champion. And he'll be 5-0, and I think, at that point. Awesome. Uh, he's looking to get into the UFC. Do you think the UFC signs him? If, if they're paying attention and they're smart, they, they certainly should. Because at this point... They can get him cheaper than he would be, you know, if he's a few years older. And he's definitely a guy that has UFC level skills and talent. I think he's like he he needs to be there eventually. They should scoop him up when they can, early as they can. Well, I mean, the, you look at uh, the flyweight picture. There's you know, it's a division where everybody's like, oh, Demetrius Johnson cleared it out. But you have some guy contenders who've established themselves: Ray Borg, Sergio yeah. Pettis. You can't let those guys fighting each other. They basically need to hold sit in a holding pattern. And wait to take turns fighting Demetrius Johnson, True. assuming that he wins whichever the first next fight is. Right. Um, and then you're going to need somebody else. Like, why not bring in Jose Torres, who's will be five and zero. Give him a couple fights. Get yeah. that up to seven and zero. It's a little, you know, record that might appeal to things. The other thing that people don't understand is this is a guy who's twenty five and one as amateur, and I think he's on like an eighteen fight win streak, right. <laughs> going back to his amateur career. Like, he's a, he's he has a world seasoned dude. Titles yeah. In amateur, twenty five and one, twenty six. Yeah. I mean, he's not inexperienced. He's not your average no. five and zero guy. But no. you saw a ten and zero Chris Weidman knockout. Yeah. Uh, Anderson Silva. Right. You saw a ten and zero or eleven or twelve. Some you know somewhere around there. Cody Garbrandt just right. beat Dominic Cruz. Right. So. Right. No, it's, yeah, it's important for people to remember that. You know, it sounds like, oh, five fights, you know, that's that's not enough. Well, yeah, it's pretty close to enough. And and on top of that, he has way more amateur fights than most MMA yeah. fighters get. Five fights? How about thirty one fights? <laughs> right, exactly. And in that he's thirty and one. Like Exactly. No, the kid's a stud and he's he's world class for sure. He's a good uh, a good kid too. He's uh, he trains out with TJ Dillashaw. TJ Dillashaw flies him in to train. Uh, so that says a lot right there. Him. How so, about that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. TJ Dillashaw uses this guy to prepare him for fights. Um, he told us because that's because uh, D- Dillashaw doesn't know how to not go 110 <laughs> percent he's one of the few people who can handle it. <laughs> yeah, I was willing. But, he was willing to spar with TJ. Yeah. But that helps. This only helps. Dil- um, <clears throat> Shorty Torres, and he's yeah. out there training at Elevation Fight Team, which is a you know stack team. We talked to Curtis Blades. He fights. Out, yeah. He came into the office. He fight. It trains out there. There's a lot of professional fighters. Katzengano trains there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so he's around the best of the best. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Neil said, Magny, Matt Brown, just tons of names. Yeah, yeah. He, I was talking to him for a piece uh, that'll run tomorrow, and he said oh, he feels like a professional athlete finally, which was kind that's of a cool. cool. Thing. That is cool. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to say before we hang it up. Bellator 179 in mm-hmm. London at the Wembley Arena. I think it's renamed something else, but it was the Wembley Arena. Always, we- always Wembley right here. In my yeah. It always. It's, it's <laughs> Forever like a Wembley. Cowboy Hashtag. Stadium. They, it was Cowboy Stadium for five years, and they tried to change it to at and It'll yeah. always be Cowboy That's Stadium. That's right. That's right. Uh, which is a genius move by Jerry Jones, but we'll get into that in <laughs> uh, Anyways, Rory McDonald, Paul Daly, main event, welterweight title implications. The winner will get the shot at Diego Lima mm. or um, who's he fighting? Sorry. Lorenz Larkin, that's right. UFC, that's right. Uh, they fight at Bellator, NYC. They'll get the winner of that. Yeah. So predictions: Do you think Roy McDonald just comes in and starts wrecking people? I, I think. Uh, I, I mean, I think he's an amazing fighter. I think he's taking a lot of damage for being a young man. So we'll, we'll see if he, you know how much his reflexes have diminished. That said, his skills match up really well against someone like uh, like Semtex. I feel like. Rory, if if things get a little too hairy with uh, with Daly's quick 
and powerful punches, which they can get Harry very fast. He can knock out a mule at any given day, probably always will be able to till his dying day. If things get a little rough, he doesn't like the look he's getting from Daly on the feet. I feel like Rory McDonald could take the fight down. He's got excellent wrestling. So I think, I think it's a good matchup. Uh, a good matchup as as really dangerous matchups go for Rory McDonald. I'll pick Rory. I think he can. I think in, you know in five rounds he can get a stoppage or submission. Uh, Daly in his last fight knocked out a guy in Bellator known for knocking people out, yeah. Brennan Ward. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely a dangerous opponent. It's going to be a good fight. Uh, unfortunately, there's four events in MMA that night, and then Invicta the next night. It's a crazy weekend for MMA. Um, it's just splitting up the time anyway. zones, right? Like at least if it's in Wembley, it's sort of like you can watch it in the morning or afternoon, or is that not right? That's a topic for another day. But they, <laughs> all right, but I, I believe it will be tape delayed. Oh, so oh okay. So you are, yeah, you've got to have sixteen televisions unless to watch you can everything. find a Brazilian or not Brazilian, British, <laughs> British yeah. stream to That's watch. True, <laughs> um, which isn't the worst idea. No. Uh, Any then the last thing I wanted to ask is uh, last week it was announced that Michael Venom Page had a knee injury and he was uh, off the card. Do you think that hurts the card? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, he's he's a budding star and he's a British dude, so I bet it does. But for Bellator, they probably sold all the tickets they were going to sell at this point so um i i think people will tune in for daily versus uh mcdonald it's you know anytime you lose a guy like uh venom page off your card it hurts but i, I still think it's a good card and it's worth watching the interesting thing i think is uh the daily mcdonald fight kind of gave something for the purists mm. and the mvp gave something for the casual fans that's true so for that one i thought it was a well-rounded pair of yeah. main events yeah no it's very know, true he the mvp brings the entertainment these you know uh, viral video sensation kind of thing coming to it. So they, um, the, what's that? What's it? The, the popping and locking element. He dances yeah. a lot. It's upper body dancing. Uh, upper body, upper body dancing. The, uh, you know, <laughs> him and uh, Cody Garbrandt could have a dance off. One <laughs> that would be good. That would be really good. I didn't know Cody Garbrandt was such a big dancer. Not until he did it in the middle of a freaking fight with Dominic Cruz. That was impressive. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll get Cody Garbrandt and the whole show will just us be watch, watching <laughs> UFC 207 with him and him walking us through like, so why did you decide to start dancing? <laughs> and tutorial. We can hope. <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to watch. Again, this concludes the show. We're going to be uploading it to iTunes, to Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, everywhere that podcasts are located. So make sure to log on. Uh, and subscribe and leave a review and rate the podcast. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next week.